Well, good morning, Southwinds. I want to say welcome to everyone who's here in the Worship Center, also those of you who are across our campus in the refinery. I'm so glad you are here, and also everyone who is joining us online. Thank you uh, for worshiping with us today. Uh, before we get into our message this morning, got a special announcement. Maybe you heard about that. You saw that on our social media. We're trying to get the word out, make sure people were paying attention. But uh, I want to announce to you today that we're really excited that we are adding a new member uh, to our pastoral team. And if you were here last week, then you kind of saw him and you may have wondered about him. But uh, Brian and Carolina Andes are going to be joining the Southwinds team. And we're really excited about that. And actually, 930, uh, they're right over here right now. And you can, uh, you can maybe say hi to them, fist bump them maybe before you leave. Uh, they're going to be joining us for worship during uh, the next couple of weeks before uh, Brian begins serving officially. First Sunday leading worship is going to be November 15. And we're just excited about that, that God has brought us together. Also very thankful uh, to our worship team that as volunteers uh, over the last about eight months has been providing uh, our family, our Southwinds family, with worship, with music um, each and every week. I hope that you will let them know uh, that you are thankful to them. Well, let's get into our study of God's Word today. We have been studying First Peter for two months now, learning about hope for exiles. And the last two weeks, if you've been with us, you will remember that we've been looking at what I'm calling the exile lifestyle. As Peter in this middle section of his letter is showing us what it means to live as exiles among an unbelieving world. Today's the exile lifestyle part three. And we've come to a passage that I know some of you have been dreading. In fact, you read ahead last week and you saw 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and you said to yourself, oh no. Oh no, because this is the passage where Peter talks about wives submitting to their husbands. And, and maybe you're anxious about what I'm going to say today. Uh, maybe you're already angry and you haven't even heard what I'm going to say today. Uh, maybe you're a man and you can't wait for what I'm going to say today. By the way, uh, none of those attitudes are good attitudes to have right now, you should know. But I want to say a couple of things before we jump in because context and understanding this teaching in God's Word is so important. First of all, keep in mind that this is what Peter, part of what Peter is telling us about how to live beautiful lives before a watching world. And we've been learning this truth the last couple of weeks. God commands us as exiles to live beautiful lives. And this comes from verse 12 in chapter 2 where we are told to have honorable conduct, where we are told to do good deeds so that even when people say bad things against us, they call us evildoers, they will see how we live and they'll still glorify God. See, we're exiles. We don't belong here. This is not our home. And so even though our culture may look at us and see us as strange and reject us, may think we're relics from the past, they may say we're haters, they may say that we're dangerous to society, we are to live lives of such beauty in Christ that people will have to look at how we live and stop and give glory to God. Second, I want to remind you, keep in mind that these words are God's word. And you see, we all have tendencies to read certain parts of God's word and to kind of 
discount what is being said here, to kind of say, ah, that may not apply to me. And, and, and so our approach to God's word always, 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 say always, should be one of submission. And so be aware of any tendency in your heart to rationalize away the clear meaning of God's words here or to twist what God is saying here for your own selfish purposes. So be aware of where your heart is as you listen to what Peter has to say. And with those things in mind, I want you to hear Peter's words to husbands and wives. What do they mean? Well, let's read them first. Beginning in verse 1, Peter says, Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And this is the word of the Lord. All God's people say. Now Peter is telling us what the exile lifestyle looks like in our marriages, in our homes. And and we need to be open about this and just admit his words are controversial in our culture today. They are disturbing to people in our culture today. Maybe even to some of you who are hearing them. And it's very, very easy for us to take Peter's words out of context. It's very easy to misuse them. But if you understand the original context historically that Peter was speaking into, if if you will set aside the misuse, even the abuse that these words have been subjected to by some people today, I believe you're going to find words of, of beauty and insight here. And there is so much insight here. In fact, even if you're not married, so much insight here about how to get along with people, about how to improve all of your relationships, about how to share your faith with people that you're living with closely. These are powerful verses. But they're specifically, they're, they're about marriage. And I want to kind of characterize them in this way because I think they are words of beauty when you understand them. I want us to think of what's being said here in terms of gifts. Peter is giving a challenge to wives and husbands to give gifts to one another. And we're going to start with three gifts that he points out wives can give to their husbands. So think of them in this way. These are gifts. The first is the gift of respectful submission. We, we see this in verses 1 and 2 where Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Let me just stop right here. And let me just kind of address the fact that some of you, when you heard me read those words a moment ago and then a second time now, you, you, you didn't hear everything I said because you kind of stopped listening after the S word. Right? And, and for so many people in our culture, they, they, they rebel, they resist. This cannot be right. This is so wrong. What's Peter saying here? 
Well, this word submission means, and again, I remind you, this is God's word. This word submission just means the willingness to follow or to defer to or to give respect. But is Peter, you're probably asking, saying that the woman is the wife's, uh, the, the woman is the man's slave, the wife's the husband's slave? Is Peter saying that whatever husband says, the wife's got to do it, no questions asked? You know, modern people, 2020 people, don't respond real well to stuff like this. It reminds me of the story of the couple that went to the doctor. And after the husband had been examined by the doctor, the doctor called the wife into his office alone, said he had something to tell her. And when she got in there, he said, I have some real bad news. Your husband is suffering from a very rare stress disease. And for him to live, you have to just relieve all his stress. You're going to need to submit to his every desire. Every morning you're going to have to fix him a healthy breakfast. Be just pleasant at all times around him. Do not burden him with any chores. Just let him rest. And he said you can't nag him. And certainly do not tell him your problems. It's only going to worsen his stress. And most importantly, I want you to make love to your husband several times every week. Doctor said, if you do all of these things for about a year, he should recover completely. So he left the office and they got in the car. And on the way home, the husband asked, well, what did the doctor say to you? And she looked at him and she said, well, he told me you're going to die. (laughs) Now that doctor's prescription may be what some of you imagine when you hear the word submit. And this word's loaded in our culture, and we should be recognizing that. It's misused sometimes by by men in church. But, But the beauty of these verses, when you understand what they were actually meant to do in their cultural context, is great. So you say, what's their context? Well, we're gonna start kind of narrow, and we're gonna broaden it out a little bit at a time. I'm gonna start just with the context of Peter's words in these first couple verses. Because these first couple verses show us several things that submission does not mean. So first, submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. We actually see that in verse 1. Do you see it? It says the wife is a Christian, the husband is not. So that means the husband has one set of ideas about ultimate reality and she has another. Peter tells her to be submissive while assuming that she won't submit to his own view of the most important thing in the world, which is God. See, submission cannot mean agreeing with everything your husband thinks. Secondly, submission does not mean leaving your brain or will at the wedding altar. As a wife who is submissive, you can still think and decide because, again, this woman has heard the gospel. She's thought about Jesus' truth claims. She has perceived in her heart the beauty and the worth of Jesus and his work, and she chose him. Her husband's not chosen Christ. He doesn't believe the word. He doesn't obey the word, but she has. She's thought for herself. She's acted, and so Peter doesn't tell her to retreat from that commitment. Third, submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change your husband. See, the whole point of these verses uh, is to tell a wife how she can win her husband. She's to be subject so she can win him to faith in Christ. That's change. Peter is saying that the goal of submission in one sense is to help change a husband in the most profound way of all, from spiritual death to spiritual life. Fourth, 
Submission does not mean putting your husband's will before God's will. And that just kind of follows from everything I've been saying. Peter is clearly teaching the wife follows Jesus first. She is not to follow her husband on the path of unbelief. And maybe you can understand it this way, overarching. Submission to Jesus relativizes submission to husbands. It also relativizes submission to the government and to employers. And even, by the way, uh, to parents. Now, you can broaden the focus out a little larger to the larger context of the, of the entire letter of 1 Peter. And when you read everything that Peter says, again, as I mentioned, this, is, uh, this passage is part of a larger discussion on submission that really includes every single Christ follower. We've been really seeing that the last couple weeks, chapter 2, verse 13 tells us that we are all to submit to governing authorities. Chapter 2, verse 18, servants are commanded to submit to masters, so it's not just wives. We're going to see next week that we're all to live in humility to one another, and humility involves a kind of submission and deference. So Peter, in a broader context, is just really talking about the Christian virtue of submission. You, you might call it the I am second lifestyle. That's how we're all to live. It's not just for wives. It's for all Christians. In fact, we read the New Testament, and we see that the same word is used of Jesus. Jesus lived submissive to his Father. Was Jesus weak? Was Jesus inferior? No, he was the most powerful, strongest person ever. This word is used to describe his humility. And then if we broaden the focus out to the context of the entire Bible... We see that the Bible nowhere teaches that women are inferior to men. The Bible nowhere says a wife is to be like a spineless slave to her husband. The Bible does say that God created a man, male and female, equally in his own what? Image. That's Genesis 1.27. In the New Testament, Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus quotes that verse in Genesis, and he says that husbands and wives are no longer two, but one. How can you be one if you're not equal in value and worth? This was a totally radical idea in first century culture. No one thought like this. And then, of course, Galatians 3.28, the apostle Paul, who also, by the way, in Ephesians 5, tells Christians that wives are to be submissive to their husband. Paul says, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, just take all of this, all of what the Bible says, and then you set it up against the historical context of what was happening in Greco-Roman society in the first century, and you see something very, very different than what people think today. I want to show you a classic depiction of a Roman family from around this time. And you'll notice in this picture that the father, he's like huge. And he, he's like reclining on the first century version of a lazy boy, uh, enjoying himself. The rest of the family is in the background. They're serving him. And this is a great visual of Roman culture at this time where the patriarch, the father, utterly ruled the household. In fact, he was what was called, maybe you've heard this word before, the pater familias. It's kind of a technical term. It just it meant that legally he had the power to do whatever he wanted to do with his family. This power extended even to death. And in Peter's culture, uh, many believed that, that men could divorce their wives at any time for any reason. All they had to do was give their reason 
and then say, I divorced you three times, and it was a done deal. And we know from records at the times, uh, I'm not making this up, some reasons that husbands gave. They, uh, some guy got divorced because his wife burned his bread. Another guy said he was divorcing her because she put too much salt in the food. Uh, another guy said he was getting a divorce because his wife had an offensive hairdo. So this is the, this is the culture that Peter is speaking into. And so Christianity comes into this. Do you see how radical it is? It's elevating women. It says that in Christ there's no male or, there, there's no male or female in terms of value and worth. We're all one in Christ. And, and this is why Christianity began little by little to turn society upside down. Now, there's a book published by Princeton University Press written by sociologist Rodney Stark. He now teaches at, at Baylor University, which is my alma mater. And it's called The Rise of Christianity. He has this great quote I want you to see. He says, women enjoyed substantially higher status in the Christian subculture than pagan women in the world at large. And so here's the historical reality on the ground to which Peter was writing. All over the Roman Empire, women were converting to Christianity in droves. Rodney Stark says, when you look at the roles of churches that we have from the first two centuries, women far outnumber the men. Does that sound like an oppressive faith to women? No, it was a very appealing faith to women at that time. And what begins to happen really is a potential sociological problem. You have all these women adopting this faith and their husbands are not sharing it with them. And that leads to why Peter addresses husbands specifically how wives should share their faith with their husbands if their husband's not a believer. And you have to wonder if Peter's thinking about a specific example like a woman that he knows. She's a believer, her husband's not. She's found forgiveness and freedom in Christ. She's growing in her knowledge of Scripture. She's got a whole new set of friends. And all her husband can see is that this, this Jesus stuff has just messed up his wife. And now she wants him to join her. And this was a very serious social situation. In Roman culture, a wife was expected that she would have the same gods as her husband. And so if she didn't, it brought shame on the husband. And so this situation creates great, great conflict. I don't know, maybe some of you, you're here today and this describes your situation in your family. Maybe some of you, it's like your deepest desire is to see your husband believe. Maybe, for some of you, maybe the reality is you're so enthusiastic about Jesus, you're one of those people that you push a little too hard. You know, you're laying the tracks out on the counter. You're putting books in places that he's going to, you know, run past him. You're taping Bible verses to the bathroom mirror, you know, where he brushes his teeth and shaves in the morning. You know, you're just doing all kinds of stuff like that. And I think Peter's advice to you in that context is real simple. He would say, stop. He would say it doesn't work. He would tell you, you cannot nag anyone into becoming a Christ follower. I mean, just think about your own life. Think back when you became a Christian, how that happened. It probably wasn't become someone harangued you or out-debated you, right? It was probably because you got to know someone and you saw what Peter is calling their inner beauty. You began to look at their character and look at their life and you wanted what they had. You didn't understand it, but you wanted it. And maybe for some of you, you're that person that 
at some point, you almost invited yourself to church because you wanted what they had. The message paraphrase of these verses says this, the same goes for you wives. Be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who, indifferent as they are to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. It's what we've been saying. God calls us to live beautiful lives. As you trust God and as you live for him, God can work in ways you cannot imagine in your husband's heart. I want to say something here. Uh, This is not like a 100% guarantee. This is is a, a principle, not a promise. But what kind of environment makes trusting Christ more likely? High pressure, critique, judgment, or love and respect? I think it's obvious. You know, we could, we could spend a lot of time actually on this topic that we don't have today. But I want to point one more thing out here. And maybe you can discuss this in your life groups. Peter nowhere describes what precise behaviors demonstrate respectful submission. You notice that? Peter doesn't say who should do the cooking or who should do the laundry or who should pay the bills. And what that means, among other things, is that respectful submission will look different in every marriage. This is not about a personality thing. You know, some of you in the room are are, uh, what might be called strong women. You have a strong personality And I don't mean that in any negative way at all, in case you're wondering. But you're a person who is strong and and you take action and you speak up. And maybe you feel like you're not really a submissive person. That's not what we're we're not talking about personality here. Uh, Different husbands and different wives have different interplays of their personalities that, that impact how submission looks. So I just want to say to you, don't make the mistake of thinking that you're failing because the way you show respectful submission is different than someone else. And then, for some others of you, don't make the mistake of judging other people who don't look like you, who do this differently than you do. Any wife who chooses can give to her husband the gift of respectful submission. She can also, secondly, give the gift of inner beauty. Look at verses 3 through 5. These are more controversial verses. It says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting out of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And I have to ask a question. This is about Bible interpretation, how we do this. Is this passage telling us that God forbids women to braid their hair or to wear jewelry or to wear nice clothes. Truth of the matter is, you can just raise your hand right now if you've ever heard someone say that's what it means. You can't wear braided hair or certain kinds of jewelry. Have you ever heard Christians say that's what Peter's talking about here? I see a few hands. Some of you have encountered this. Others of you don't want to really get into that, I can tell. Um, But here's the thing we know. It cannot mean that. And it, all you have to do is look at that, those verses because Peter just says, you know, don't let your beauty be about the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the wearing of clothes. Does anybody here think that would be a good interpretation of these verses that Peter is saying being a Christian means you don't wear clothes? 
course not. So what's he saying? He's saying something very, very different. And I always think it's helpful if we can find some things out about how the original readers would have understood uh, verses like this. And it's kind of intriguing. We actually have some depictions of early Christian women, and they give us some clues. Um, I want to show you up here the earliest known depiction of a Christian family. And this is a a glass medallion, probably from um, around the time of Peter. It depicts an early Christian family in Rome. Most likely, uh, uh, scholars, historians think that a husband would have worn it around his neck so they didn't have photography. So they had an artist paint um, this picture. And you'll notice there's like the son on the left and then there's the daughter on the right. The, the mom is in the back. And notice what we see here. Notice what we see them wearing. Um, the daughter has braids. Uh, she has wearing a pearl necklace. She's got earrings on. The mom is in the back wearing a knotted garment. Uh, There's a knot here which indicates that she was married. It's kind of like a wedding ring back then. It it sort of looks like she might have eyeliner on. If you look at it, think about it. Maybe she's wearing some makeup. I, I mean, they almost look modern, right? Except for the exact style of clothing. But they're modest. And that's the point. Now, by contrast, what did women in the pagan Roman culture were, not Christians. Around this time that Peter wrote, there was this crazy fashion trend that wealthy women got into, and it basically involved what historians of fashion call exaggerated hairstyles, kind of like this. And this is a statue, and this is an extremely elaborate hairstyle. The statue comes from about 80 AD, and maybe this will help you understand the source of Peter's words here. Peter is saying, I guess you could put it like this, you don't have to look like Medusa. You know? (laughs) No matter what culture, what peer pressure tells you, he's really saying don't base your beauty on outward stuff. See, Christian women still wore jewelry, still braided their hair, but they did it modestly. He is saying instead, your beauty, your worth should come from what's inside. So, Here's a question. I want you to think about this. Do women today need to hear this? In in our culture today, are women under constant pressure to depend on external beauty? Say yes or no. What do you think? Of course. In fact, I'm going to just show you this. We could do this in a number of ways. But I want to show you some images of um, headlines from some current magazine Cultures And the question when you see all these is how do any women keep their self-esteem with all this pressure continually going in the face, you know, her face? Uh, you need to trim your waist in only 14 days. Don't waste the next two weeks. Work on your waist now. Right? I mean, you see the urgency, the pressure. How about this one? Lose 24 pounds your first week. I mean, talk about unreasonable expectations, right? And then... This one, lose your belly fat. And if you look at these magazines ever, I mean, you begin to see that there's a big emphasis on on this this fat thing. Um, You know, drop super, five pounds super fat. Here's another one, flat belly now, melt that ab flab. You know, just that, that, you know, one, one magazine I came across had a special flat belly issue. The entire, entire issue on why your belly should be more flat. Why isn't your belly flat? 
I mean, you, you just feel this. But, but you, you keep looking, and, and all the other body parts are going to come into play because if you think they're stopping at belly fat, they're, you're crazy, right? I mean, how about this one? You also need to improve in this ways. Flat abs, tight tush, killer legs. And then this one. Your best butt ever. Ever? Well, this is like my second best butt. That's not good enough. You know, and, and then it's just everything. You know, here's the next one. Trim and tone every inch. Amazing arms and only six moves. Your arms aren't good enough. And then this one, you need to resize your thighs. Your thighs aren't good enough. And then uh, why don't you have, I mean, there's just more and more. Dream skin. You need to work on it. I, I didn't put these up, but I found one that said 43 cute nail ideas. It's like your, your thighs are cute. That is your best butt ever, but your nails are so disappointing. I mean, it never ends. It never stops. There's not a body part left out. It's no wonder women are depressed about this. There was one famous female comedian a number of years ago said, sometimes I want to kill myself, but first I think I need to lose five pounds. And interestingly enough, I don't have any pictures of this because this was too discouraging. It was starting to, sh it started to show up in men's magazines. You'll, you'll see headlines like, Steps to Whiter Teeth. I, I actually heard on a talk show I was listening to this week uh, about a, this, this talk show host has a child in elementary school. I think the child's eight. And this child who's eight has friends that he's meeting at the playground who have had their teeth whitened. At eight years old and younger. Uh, and then there are, there are headlines like, new baldness breakthroughs. Breakthroughs. You know, I'm so glad that researchers are working on this. It's kind of like the scourge of baldness has struck. Even our staff here at Southwinds, please join us in the search for a cure. I mean, it's way, way too serious, right? It just keeps going. And I think what Peter is doing is setting women and men incidentally free here see our perception of beauty today gets so distorted by advertising and movies and social media i mean do you realize i hope you do that the the so-called beauty that you see on magazine covers and in other places it's not even real so much of the time we, we know this don't we it's been photoshopped and filtered even these people that are like supernaturally beautiful already is not sufficient. You got to make them even better. And so we are being sold these standards that just aren't even realistic. If, if you're looking at your Bible, you might circle the word imperishable. Or if you have the NIV, it's the word unfading. Same, same idea there. Uh, we, we can have a beauty that doesn't die. A beauty that doesn't fade away. But external beauty always does. I came across a quote from a few years ago from a source that really highlights this. I think you would agree with me that Halle Berry is probably one of the more beautiful women in our culture, right? Um, and, and yet, this is what she said. Beauty? Let me tell you something. Being thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life. No heartache, no trouble. Love has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless, and it is always transitory. I mean, I think you could say that Halle Berry is just agreeing with Peter. 
Peter's not saying that beauty is evil or wrong, but it is transitory. It doesn't last. Only internal beauty is unfading and imperishable. Let me just say a real quick word right here to husbands. You can help your wives cultivate this gift. You can also make it hard for her to practice this if you spend your time drooling over her shoulder at the beauty of other women. Make sure that you're helping her to give you this gift. That leads to the third gift Peter talks about. It's the gift of trust in God, the gift of a confident woman. He, he says in verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The NIV says you are her daughters if you do what is right and, and do, do not give way to fear. The message says that you are her true daughters, unanxious and unintimidated. So Peter's saying you need to be like Sarah. Well, who was she? Well, she was Abraham's wife, lived about 4,000 years ago. And we know about her from Genesis. And one of the things we know is that she left the comforts of the city of Ur. And I just want to show you a picture of that archaeologists have uncovered this city of Ur. Ur doesn't sound really impressive, right, you know, when you hear that name. But it was actually one of the, the richest and most powerful cities of that day. This is a ziggurat that they've uncovered in the ruins um, of Ur. It was a very advanced place. A lot of culture, a lot of wealth was there. Abraham, we know, was a wealthy man in that culture. And God comes to Abraham and God tells him, I want you to leave. I want you to, to go on a journey. And he begins following God. And, and, and basically, Abraham and Sarah lived the rest of their lives as nomads. And it would have been interesting or easy for her to be filled with anxiety. She was losing everything. But what did she do? Well, the Bible tells us she goes for it, unanxious, unintimidated. And I think Peter is saying here, give your husband the gift of a mate who trusts God so much that she knows God will take care of anything. And that's a really good gift to give to a husband because whether husbands admit it or not, wives, I just want to tell you for them, we know how often we screw up. We know how often we fail. And so we need you to trust in God as we tr uh, seek to trust in God. What a gift that can be to a marriage. You know, I wish we could, again, go deeper into this. I just want to point out a couple of things that are happening here. There's so many more things. Maybe you can talk about this in your life group. But what Peter is doing in these first verses here, think about it. He's counseling wives to not depend on what may be their greatest strengths in relationship to their husbands. You say, what do you mean? Well, most wives are, generally speaking, maybe some exceptions, but generally speaking, better than their husbands with words. I'm not saying you talk too much. I don't want any emails about that. I'm just saying, as a general rule, wives are better with words. And oftentimes, wives may be tempted to manipulate with words. Then also, Peter is saying, wives, do not use your physical beauty to manipulate your husband. And I think you know where that's going. Instead, depend on God. Depend on God to help accomplish the things that you want to see happen in life. 
Trust God, what God is doing in your life and in your family's life. Peter is also, I think, here addressing abuse because he's, he's talking about wives who fear and what they, what they might fear is that husband who can do as paterfamilias whatever he wants to do. He says, trust God, trust God no matter what. But as, as we've seen, Peter doesn't stop with the wives. He challenges husbands in verse 7. And, and, and I, I'm going to point out two gifts that husbands can give to their wives. And I, 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 I'm only asking the husbands to give two gifts because husbands are generally not very good with gifts. Like wives are better. So you can handle three. He can probably only handle two. Is that fair? Help me out here, guys. Um, and so uh, before I get into this, I, I, I want you to see this. I found this poll that showed top complaints that wives have about their husbands and number one he never tells me he loves me number two spends too much time at work number three doesn't really know me number four doesn't honor me as an equal number five he has a roving eye and it's interesting when you think about it Peter addresses every one of these complaints in verse seven. First of all he says husbands give your wife the gift of intimate understanding This is from the beginning of the verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, the Greek word translated by live with, one word, but it's a compound word that intensifies the idea. It means to dwell together deeply or intimately. I heard someone say a long time ago that too many marriages are like parallel train tracks. They they rarely intersect. And just because a husband and wife live under the same roof, eat the same food, sleep in the same bed, does not guarantee that they're intimately connected. This kind of intimacy, it happens, husbands, as you understand your wives, as you live with your wife in an understanding way. Intimacy and understanding go together. Again, literally, the Greek says, according to knowledge. According to knowledge. And Peter's talking about soul-level knowledge. When I do premarital counseling, I always tell prospective husbands that their calling as a husband to their wife-to-be is to earn a Ph.D. in her. To learn everything they can about her. It's their calling. It's their job to know her inside and out. What are her fears and joys? Where is she struggling spiritually to believe the gospel? And this takes time, husbands. You have to take time to know your wives. It is a privilege for you. And honestly, sometimes your wife is anxious and afraid and angry because she doesn't think you care. If you want to make her more uh, fearless, less fearful, then be a man who cares about her soul, her dreams, her fears, her joys. Be a man, a husband who knows what makes her smile, what makes her laugh out loud, what what she loves to do for hours without getting bored. Do you know that? What makes her cry? Do you know that? Study her carefully. Really get to know your wife. Give her that gift. And then second, give her the gift of honor. Uh, Peter says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, my wife, Dana, has given birth to four children she is not weak i mean i'm very very grateful to god that i did not get that assignment 
And all the men said, Amen. Amen. You know, I, I heard Carol Burnett. You remember Carol Burnett? She's is a comedian of a little bit earlier generation. Uh, she once said this. I love this. Men, if you want to know what childbirth is like, it's easy. Just take your lower lip and stretch it over your head to the very back, your entire head. That's what childbirth is like. And all the women now said, amen. Women are strong. So what is Peter talking about here when he says weaker vessel? Did that make any of you mad? Any of you not like this phrase here? Well, People today often assume the Bible teaches that women are inferior to men. And unfortunately, there are some Christian men who have taught this. And there are some who live like this. And by the way, um, if you live like this, I say you live like this to your shame. And I use that word shame intentionally if that's you. Because Peter is teaching the exact opposite. Peter's actually elevating women. In fact, let me point something out here. Did anybody go... Um, any of you women, and you don't have to raise your hand on this, but did any of you go, how come the men get only one verse and we get six? That's not fair. Anybody think like that? Any of the husbands go, I'm only glad I got one verse and I didn't get six. Actually, do you know, here's the truth. In the cultural context of the day, those people who first read what Peter wrote would have received that exactly the opposite of how we receive it. The fact that Peter addresses the people who are lower in the culture in terms of status was a way of elevating them, a way of honoring them. Do you notice that? It's actually happened in the previous two uh, passages that we looked at. Peter doesn't address the emperor and the governors. He addresses citizens who are below them. Peter doesn't address masters. Who does he address? He addresses servants. And again, what he's doing here is subversive to the values of the culture. He's turning it around. He's elevating the worth of women by speaking to them. And that is precisely how the women that were scattered across Asia Minor who got this letter first would have received those words. They would have received them as honor because Peter was addressing them and speaking to them. So Peter is declaring the exact opposite. He's not saying that women are intellectually weaker. How many of you men know your wife is smarter than you are? He's not saying women are emotionally weaker. Sometimes men like to say that. But I think many of you women, uh, men who sometimes look down on your wife for her emotional vulnerability and her willingness to share her emotions, you are actually emotionally weaker than her because you're afraid. You're afraid to let your emotions out. She has courage and strength and she's willing to be honest. Peter isn't saying that women are spiritually weaker. The most obvious meaning of Peter's words are that generally speaking, women are weaker than men in terms of just sheer physical strength. It's not about value or worth at all. Peter confirms this actually in the very next phrase. Do you see this when he said, since they are heirs with you, some versions say co-heirs of the grace of life. Now, do you remember what I said about the paterfamilias? Roman husbands who could do whatever they wanted to with their wives and kids. Here's what's happening here. Peter is forbidding behavior like this. In fact, I would say this is the first recorded attack in human history on spousal abuse. Peter's forbidding it. He's saying, husbands, I know that in Roman culture you have the legal right to shove your wife and your kids around. But I am telling you, do not. They are heirs of the grace of God. 
along with you. So grant your wife honor as a co-heir of grace, as a fellow heir. She is not subordinate. She is a co-heir. Honor you. Honor her. Now, I also tell couples that I marry in counseling, this is the vow you will make in your wedding that is most often broken. And so, man, I just want to ask you a personal question. How do you treat your wife on an average day? Do you honor her? Do you honor her both in actions and in words? I was thinking about what honor means, and, and, and I, I just was thinking about when we honor someone, it, it's, it's almost always public, right? Like if you have an award and there's a, a banquet or a gala and you're there, you know, in a, in a big room with a bunch of people. This is the person of the year. They, they, they've done something significant. No, the, the, the crowd doesn't sit around silently going, oh, so-and-so is so awesome. Words are spoken. Accolades are given. It is publicly declared. And, and that's what husbands should be doing to honor their wives. Have you done that with your children? Have you done that in front of your in-laws with your broader family? Do you do that with your friends or does the opposite too often happen? What happens when you dishonor your wife? Well, Peter says it's serious. He says your prayers are hindered and he, he doesn't explain exactly why this is the case, but somehow our spiritual health as husbands is tied closely to how much we honor our wives. Again, the message paraphrase says, but in the, the real new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. Here's actually the bottom line. I want to read verse 8 that we're going to study next week. But Peter says this is really just how we're to live with one another. It doesn't matter our station in life. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In other words, Peter is saying, in a me-first world, live in your homes with a you-first attitude. And for Peter, this isn't just good manners. This is what it means to live a beautiful life. This is the way Jesus lived. So let's ask God to give each of us this, this strength, this kind of love and honor and respect and sacrifice and service for others. Wouldn't it be a great thing for people to look at us here at Southwinds and for them to say that we're the kind of church where we live these kind of beautiful lives? Wouldn't it be awesome if people would say, I love Southwinds because the people there, they're not overbearing, they're not judgmental, they don't try to shove it down your throat. You know what they believe, but they're so gentle and kind and respectful that I'm kind of drawn to it, even though I don't agree. See, this is what Peter was talking about. This is the exile lifestyle. Let's live, Southlands. Let's live beautiful lives together. Would you bow your heads as we pray?